Last week, if you remember, I didn't get to preach all that I wanted to preach. I didn't get to say all that I wanted to say. But one thing that I want to make sure that uh, you heard last week, God conquers the greatest of obstacles, whatever those obstacles may be. That's what we learned when he says he's going to level the plane in uh, Zechariah chapter 4. He conquers the greatest of obstacles. There's nothing. Nothing that can stand in his way to bring him glory. You say, well, why doesn't he do it now? He is. He's about doing it in the life of us. He is saving us. He is continuing to sanctify us. In the first seven verses of chapter 4, which we've already looked at, God levels the greatest of mountains in our life because he wants to put himself on display, not us. We looked at that verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to know that there are three truths that we have discovered here, three truths that uh, Zechariah, the the prophet, gives us. And I want you to uh, understand that we have this outline going. I didn't introduce it last week because of the time crunch. But here's the first truth, which we've already looked at. The Holy Spirit is the source of strength. The Holy Spirit is the source of strength. Today we're going to look at verses 8 through 14, but I want to read all of the section. We're going to see the next two truths that Zechariah is revealing in this vision In this fantastic vision, one after another has just been absolutely incredible for my heart. And the second truth that we're going to learn is the Holy Spirit uses our weaknesses. He uses our weaknesses. We see that in verses 8 through 10. And then the last truth is the Holy Spirit uses those who display his glory. Those who display his glory, not their own glory. When we are about displaying our glory... He does not allow it to go forward. So let's read the whole section. Follow with me as I read. Zechariah chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, And the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. We told you and explained to you what that is. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold and its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Now, i got to tell you, he says that quite often. He sees these things, but he keeps asking that question. What, what, What is this? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. 
Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But the seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. And I said to him, what are these? Two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on the left. And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. It is an incredible passage, folks. An incredible anointing that's going to happen here, and we'll see that in a few minutes. Remember the context, and I always want to bring you back to that. We can never eliminate the context because this is Old Testament. The context is the return of the nation Israel back into their homeland, back into Jerusalem. They've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They've returned with the directive from God to build the wall and build the temple. The worship of Yahweh in the temple has not happened for the 70 years while they were in captivity. And now the building of the temple is being delayed. It's dragging on. The hearts are beginning to become weak, unbelieving. The people are distracted. The people are discouraged because they don't see it. Let's start in verse 8 there. It says, also the word of the Lord came to me saying it. It's basically the continuation of this vision. Verse 9, it says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. That's already taken place. They've they've put the footings in. They they know exactly how big the building is going to be. They've had that laid there for a while. The project started in 537, 536 B.C., somewhere in there. Now it's 519 B.C., and and they can say, oh, the footings are in. (laughs) The foundation is there. Could you imagine doing that in L.A. and putting a building with the footings in and laying it there for 19 years? Are you serious? Maybe paying rent on that already. The foundation is laid. For 17 years, it has been a process. They have been defending themselves. I gave you a picture of that. They've got a sword on one hip, and they've got an axe on the other, and they're trying to build a building. They're trying to put it together. Thieves are coming in. They had no budget, no money, nothing. No, no mas. There was nothing there. They were dirt poor. They were being discouraged. Frankly, it was going so slow, so slow, there is question as to whether it will ever be completed. In 2007, my kids moved over to Phoenix, Arizona, and there was a building that had a frame to it already. 2007 was the crash. That building stayed in that frame until they finally took it down 10 years later. That's the same kind of thing, although that building is worthless. Uh, this, is, this is the temple. This is supposed to be where we worship God. It's not been completed. The workers are being distracted. 
They have their own desires that are distracting them. They'd like to have a roof over their heads. They don't want to be living out on the street. They want to have a roof over their heads. And so they start building their own home instead of God's. They're depressed because there's no advancement. They don't see anything happening. Zerubbabel hears these words from Zechariah the prophet, that the foundation is complete. That's good news. It's, it's at least got the foundation in. It's encouraging. You see, Zerubbabel is encouraged because God is recognizing it. He's hearing this prophet speak the words of God, and he's encouraged. He's encouraged that there's progress, at least getting the foundation in. Zerubbabel is elated, though, mostly, most importantly, by the second part of the declaration in this verse. And it says there in verse 9, and his hands will finish it. Whoa. He's being told Zerubbabel is going to finish it. He's going to get it done. It's going to happen. Beloved, that is God speaking to Zerubbabel, telling him that the job that he's doing, although very slow and although very precarious at times and although very troubled at times, he's going to complete it. Do you imagine giving an assignment and being told that it's going to be complete? It's like when I did my doctor, I had it handed back to me. You need to do this, 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 and this. Well, I did this, 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 and this, and I handed it in. No, now you need to do this. And now you need to do this. I finally went into her business. They said, Dr. Business, I got three people out of four that said that it's okay. And, and why do I have to keep changing it? He says, you have to do whatever they say. Thank you, Dr. Business. It's the same thing with us. We have to do whatever God says. We have to do it his way, not our way. Upon completions, Rubba will... Uh, as it says here in the text, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. You're going to know that God is in this because you're looking around. This is an impossibility to get completed. This is a clear indication of God's superintendence of this whole thing, of God's supervision of this work. It's not Zerubbabel who's building it, folks. He's an instrument, period. You know, I, I look around and, and, and I see my friends. We were out here at the, as the elders praying this morning with the missionaries and all of the various men in the various countries. And, and I'm thinking, MacArthur didn't think of this. Excuse me for just using his last name, but it's okay. Pastor MacArthur did not think of that 50 years ago. He started over there. And, and I remember when he was digging a hole. I, I saw pictures of it. I wasn't there. And he's digging a hole to get it started. Faithfulness in little brings about much. Faithfulness in little. Sometimes I'm asked by a, a seminary student, well, wh what do you think God has for my life? I'm supposed to know that? You know, they say, should I go here or should I go there? I said, well, just get started. <laughs> God will point out to you whether you should go there or there. He'll show you. Because if he doesn't want you to go there, he'll stop it. He'll stop it. Zechariah 4.10. For who has despised the day of small things? Folks, this indicates 
that the progress on the temple was slow and, and frankly, even painful. Last week, I, I compared the building of the first temple and the second temple, and vast, vast difference. Solomon had more money that he knew what to do with. He had more men to do the work. He had more movement in the building of the temple than Zerubbabel even came close to. The question here indicates, though, that some showed disrespect, maybe even ridicule of the builders of the temple. Remember, I looked at Ezra chapter 4, and it says that they used to make fun of the builders of the temple. It reminded me of Noah as he's building the ark, and, and they're coming along, and they're laughing at him, and they're despising him, and they're deriding him, and he keeps building. He keeps building. And as with any building project, you must have plans. And Zerubbabel had laid those out for the people previously. They had already heard about it. The plans obviously show up in the footings that he had there, the foundation that was there. It showed the, the, the length, the breadth of the temple and what he wanted to do and what God had wanted him to do. The people were truly excited to see, once again, the worship of God. That's what they wanted that's what they anticipated. Because you see, folks, they saw that as the only true worship of God if they were able to worship in the temple. But things happen. It's called life. Things happen. Construction stopped. People became discouraged. They turned to their own problems. They turned inward rather than outward. Time passed 15 years, 16 years. It slipped by. Before you know it, it's already gone. Some were beginning to say that it's ill-advised to build the temple. We should just take care of our own homes. We should take care of the walls so that we're protected from the enemy. But that is not what the Lord wanted. As I look at the passage, I begin to ask myself, how can this be applied to the folks in Anchored? How can we as New Testament Christians, as modern day, as I, I said last week, smartphone Christians, handle this? How do we do this in our life? How can the people of God here understand the word that was given in the Old Testament context? And I'm really glad that you asked. Friends, a few have been called upon by God as one of his children, he didn't call you to pick up your easy chair, to sit in it, and wait until he returns. No, no, no. When he called you to himself, when he called you out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, he called you for a purpose. You are to be doing something. I don't know exactly what it is, but you are to be doing something. He called you to serve. That's what he did. You're not to be sitting in that easy chair just watching life go by. Now, I do sit in my easy chair, but it's for a purpose. No. <laughs> I'm not watching life go by, folks. I'm, I'm, my wife will tell you, I'm doing two things at the same time, watching the ball game and working on my computer. That's what I'm doing. That's what I like to do is watch the ball game and work on my computer. Do things there. Take care of things. As a matter of fact, right after the realization of your salvation, 
that's when we should have the greatest energy to serve the Lord. I can still remember that. I went, what do I do now? I, I need to do something because he saved me out of this sin, wretchedness, this thing that had a hold on me. And I want to go in the other direction. What can I do to serve God? And you know, the moment I got down on my knees, I knew he had something. And he has something for you too. It's not just to sit and have that easy Christian life. It's to do something. Once you are saved, it should be evident that you are saved. There should be a change in character. There should be a change in your desires, a change in what you want to see God do. You see, the extraordinary truth is, folks, even in the New Testament, God shows us. I love the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, it says you were dead in trespasses and sins. But, that's the best but in the world. But God saved you. He called you. He took you out of the kingdom of darkness and he gave you life. But folks, that passage doesn't end there. It goes all the way down to verse 10 where it says, For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works. Now that's not for your salvation. Please do not get that. That's not so that you can get saved. That's to show the evidences that you are saved. You do something. Folks, if you have to serve in children's ministry, if you have to do the, the handicap ministry, whatever it is, if you come here and you bring the food, I thank you for that. This morning I was feeling a little weak and I needed some food. Thank you. We serve one another. We love one another. We care about one another. I was just sent a, a book to, to do a um, review on it. It's the one another's. Incredible. Can't wait till I start reading it. Beloved, we have been called to ministry. Every single believer is called to ministry. Maybe it's ministry in your home. A wife loving her husband raising her children, a husband understanding his wife. When you get there, folks, can you tell me, guys, you know, we're supposed to continue to understand. It's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. That's what we're supposed to do, ministry. Maybe you're called to full-time ministry. Maybe you're not. But that's, believe me, there's no difference between somebody in full-time ministry and somebody at home ministry. There was no difference, folks. When I left the Roman Catholic Church, I loved that the altar was gone. There's no difference between the guy preaching and the guy sitting in the pew. He just has a different role, period. It's all it is. But we all have a responsibility. And that's what was supposed to happen in Old Testament. He calls us, folks to take the faith that we have in coming to salvation, employ that faith now in serving him. Ephesians 6, 12 says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, the strength of his might. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And that means to all of us. See, beloved, God uses our weaknesses and it gives him glory. He uses our frailties, and it gives him glory. 
And he's, the angels are in heaven saying, wow, you could use Bill Shannon? You can use this one? You can use that one? Believe me, the angels are shocked. They should be. But God knows. Psalm 147, you don't need to turn there, but jot it down. Psalm 147, 10 and 11, it says, He does not delight in the strength of a horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. His has said that, that, that loving kindness that keeps going on and on and on. You see, folks, he didn't just love you to save you. He loved you to use you in ministry. So often, so often we think we need lots of money. We need great resources. We need to be accomplished in Greek and Hebrew or something else. The truth is, God doesn't need any of those things. He can still use you just as you are. So the question is, how are you living daily to the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 comes to my mind. Whatever you do, whatever you eat. So if I asked you what you had on Tuesday for lunch, you probably can't even remember. But you were supposed to do that to the glory of God. That's what we're supposed to do. Everything. But pastor, you don't know my situation. You know, I don't know every specific situation here. But there is somebody who does. There is somebody who does, and you need to trust him. He's not going to call you to do something that you cannot accomplish. He's not going to call you to love your wife, even if she's not a believer. He's not going to call you to love your husband, even if he's not a believer. Or to deal with your children if they're in rebellion. No. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly how he's doing it. Maybe, maybe you too had laid the foundation of your life. I, I, I had a, a plan when I was growing up, what I wanted to do. I laid this foundation. It was obliterated. But Zerubbabel was doing it because this is what God told him to do. He set things in place. But he set those things in place, and it was not happening. I, I, I think he would be, should be discouraged. God had given him an assignment, and he kept at it, and he kept at it. To live for God every day and every moment. Look for ways, folks, that you too can live a life that's pleasing to God. Look for ways to do that. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. It says, we have as our ambition. I love what Paul says. We have as our ambition. This is something we want to do, whether I'm at home or absent, to be pleasing with him. Folks, I'm thinking of missionaries when I say something like that. Our missionaries are not home. I mean, now they're home. But, but some of them are out there in a field where it's not easy. And they're supposed to be pleasing to God over there as well. Learning the language and, and sometimes being rejected and sometimes being kicked out of the country. I was in Russia. Last time I was in Russia, I couldn't even stay with an American because all the Americans have been kicked out. Same thing in India where they've had some issues where Americans had to leave. 
Folks, wherever you are, you are to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Back to our passage, verse 10. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. But these seven, what in the world is that? Questions, speculations, I got to tell you, ad infinitum, it's incredible how many speculations could come. I mean, one guy wrote four pages in his uh, commentary on the speculations of what the seven mean. I think it's very simple, folks. Look at the end of the verse. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. It doesn't mean that God is a seven-eyed monster. Seven is the number of completion, perfection. God perfectly sees everything on the earth. He doesn't miss anything on the earth. Nothing gets by him. That's what it means. That's what it means. This expression, seven eyes, is a metaphor indicating the omniscience and the omnipresence of Yahweh. God sees all. He's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's your heart, my heart. And that's why sometimes when you have some of those thoughts come into your heart, you need to counsel yourself and say, what in the world are you doing, bozo? And you can say bozo. That's what you need to do. Hey, I shouldn't be thinking this thought. I should be thinking another kind of thought. You see, you can't fool him, folks. You can't do a few little works and make it feel better. That, that's what you do for you. You're not doing it for him because you can't fool him. Speak to your heart. Repent of those thoughts that shouldn't be there. Now, as I mentioned many times, you know that I'm not a builder. I, they should have asked me to come in here and destroy things because I'm very good at tearing things down. You know, after the 1994 earthquake, I, I got really into it, ripping things out of the walls so that, you know, people could do this. Saved me some money, not much, but, but building, nuh-uh. However, I do know when the plumb line shows up, there's some progress being made, and that's the indication here. The walls are going up, there's progress. It's an indication that the little things started back in 537, 536 B.C. was beginning to come to fruition. Things were beginning to happen. Now, since this is Missionary Week around Grace Community Church, Hudson Taylor, who started the China Inland Mission, had a motto. Listen to this. A little thing is a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. That's wonderful. Take that little thing and keep serving the Lord there and keep working at it there. Watch God make it a big thing. That's what happened at Grace Community Church back in 1956. The first truth is the Holy Spirit is a source of strength. The second truth is the Holy Spirit uses our weaknesses. The third truth is the Holy Spirit uses those who display God's glory. We see that in verses 11 through 14. Let me read it again. I, please be patient. Then I said to him, and, and listen to how many times this question is asked. What are these two olive trees on the right and the uh, of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, 
What are the two olive branches, which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? He's being patient. Uh, if sometimes you deal with people and, and you ask that question again, they're not so patient. But he's being patient. And I said to him, no, my Lord. He said, again, I don't know what these are. Then he said, what are these two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth? I love that interchange. I love that interchange. Interesting. We would uh, think from the initial reading of this vision that the temple is the most significant thing uh, of all the elements that we've looked at so far. We looked at Joshua a few weeks ago. Now we have this temple and Zerubbabel. We think that the temple is the most significant thing of all. I think we have to go a little bit further and a little bit deeper in our study, in our understanding, because it, it really comes down to this, folks. It's not so much about the temple, but it's about people. It's about people. God is more concerned with people. How are they displaying the glory of God? You have the temple of the Spirit in you. How are you displaying the glory of God? God wants to see that in your life. What fueled the lampstand that we spent time on last week were the two olive trees. Remember, they were on the right and the left. Two olive trees represent two men. That is the picture being given here by Zechariah. God's work comes through the hands of fallible, weak, and insignificant people. That's how he does his work. That's how he does his work. Now, obviously, this is not a time where I'm here to raise your self-esteem. But if you want that, Sundays in July, we're going to do the last week of the Sundays in July. I'm going to help you really feel good about yourself. So I'm going to stroke you then. So if you want to come to the Sundays in July, I just can't wait to help make you feel good about yourself. <clears throat> Verse 11. What are these two olive trees on the right of the lamb standing on its left? These are the olive trees that supply the oil for the menorah that we spoke of last week. Zechariah sees these two wonders. <clears throat> What are they? He, he began, what are they? Why are they? He formulates the question, but essentially asks the same question again. The question is again repeated in verse 12. This time he, he uses olive branches and, and golden pipes and golden oil and all of that. But let me read verse 12. And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? He's like, wait a minute, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I don't know much about olive oil. I love olive oil. But the emphasis here on golden oil must mean that it's some special kind of oil. And it is. It's the never-ending supply of oil that God is supplying to his people. It's supplied by God. That's the picture here. It's called blessing, folks, that keeps coming and coming and coming. 
Verse 13, again answering the question. So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And it's like, wait a minute, this guy, you need to draw him a picture maybe. I don't know. No, my Lord. Verse 14, the angel says, these are the two anointed ones. Aha. Now, some of you may have a translation that says this. These are the sons of oil. Anybody have that? Raise your hand. Sons of oil. ESV? Ah, alternative reading in the NAS. Okay. Anybody have it in the NAS, uh, in the ESV? I looked for my ESV this morning. You do? <laughs> okay. Sons of oil. That is a possibility. These are the ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. These anointed ones have been identified, folks, as Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, the governor, the prince of Jerusalem. These are the two men who are intricate in the last two visions. These are the two post-exilic leaders of the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. The bottom line is this. Zechariah, in his prophecy, is telling the Jewish nation that God anointed both of these men in the midst of all the problems, all of the setbacks, all of the slowness of the building of the temple. He ordained them as representatives of Yahweh. God is sustaining his people by his Holy Spirit through the anointed leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel. The fourth vision restored Joshua. We saw that a few weeks ago as the religious leader. And we see that he was ordained or restored or anointed through the hope of forgiveness, the hope of the cleansing of the people. Now the fifth vision is Rubabel. He's the political leader. He's God's chosen instrument of restoration of the Hebrew community. Isn't that wonderful that God works that way? Beloved, I can pick out passages, and maybe I'll just give you the, the addresses of where they are, that the anointing of oil on individuals that were to become priests or to become kings happened throughout the Old Testament. So let me just give you those. For the priests, it would be uh, Exodus 29, 4 through 7, and Exodus 40, 15. I just, a couple of them. Don't have time to go through them right now. And for kings to be anointed as the leader by God was 1 Samuel 10, 1 and 16, 1. Psalm 89, 20 also speaks of it. You see, the oil, the anointing, was to set them apart for service. Oh, my. What is the implication for us? If you have been given God's Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is resonant in you, you've been anointed. And I'm not talking in some kind of, you know, charismatic second blessing kind of thing. I'm talking about when you received God's Holy Spirit, He anointed you to do His work, to be His representative here on earth. Because if He just wanted to save us, He could have taken us home if that was just the point. No, He left us here. He anointed you to do His work. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by. They are the servants of the Almighty to display His glory and not their own. 
God chose humble men for this task. Not those filled with themselves, but filled with the Holy Spirit of God. God is the one who nourishes these trees. He is the one who makes them fruitful. It is the same today. It has not changed. Think of the example of Christ. Christ came as a humble servant. Mark 10, 45, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he does. One last thing. I think I got a few minutes here. And if not, I'll say, please forgive me to Rich. 1 Corinthians. Would you turn there? I, I love this passage. It is about election, folks. But I just want to show you how God chooses people. I want to show you who he chose. Because you're here. You're here. 1 Corinthians 1. Starting in verse 26. For consider your calling. Those who have been called out from the world. Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are so that he will nullify the things that are. He didn't choose the kings and the queens and the billionaires and all of that. No, he chose you. He chose me. He chose the despised things of the world. He chose the foolish things of the world. Why? Because he knew who to choose, of course. Look at verse 31. So that, just as it is written, let the, him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you've been called out, if you have been received the Holy Spirit, you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> you are now to boast in him, not in yourself, because it's not about you. It's about him. And, and I love that first Peter passage where it says, and the grass of the field will burn away. Speaking of people, and, and, I, and I happen to go back to it this week because I'm going to use it in, in Eki's installation. And, <clears throat> and it says there that in two generations, basically, nobody's going to remember you anyway. They're not going to remember you anyway. I can't remember things about my grandparents and there's nothing to show for it. And so that's my own grandparents. That's not that long ago, folks. Well, almost not that long ago. <laughs> folks, God's word, and that's what goes on in that first Peter passage, lasts forever. That's what it's about, folks. Folks, we are in a dark world. We need the continual blessing of the oil of God, His Holy Spirit. So we have to eliminate the grieving of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> that means when we sin, we confess. We repent. We turn from it. We do something about it. We don't continually live in that sin because there's a cap then of God whether He's going to bless you or not. The oil is turned off. The blessing is turned off. I, I like to look at it this way. I, I'm like this cup, 
And, and God has his, his, his cup of blessing continually going like this. When I sin, I'm turning my cup this way. His, his blessing is still coming, but I'm missing it because my cup is on the side. And, and that's what happens when we grieve that Holy Spirit. You want to have that cup filled so that you can be his representative here on earth. We are to maintain the light in this dark world, and it is getting darker every day. Opposition to the church grows daily from all different directions. So pray that the Holy Spirit empowers you in your family, in the church, in your neighborhood, in your employment. May he give you grace to be representatives, that Holy Spirit representative, wherever you are. Can you imagine the church of Jesus Christ began with 12 ragtag men's backwater guys? I mean, they were fishermen. And most fishermen, you don't think very much of just fishermen. You know, they're out there most of the time in the water. You wonder what they're doing, you know? But that's what these guys were. They turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down. But you see, folks, we are still small peas and a big pod. Let the light, the Holy Spirit, shine forth in your life. Beloved, all the truths of this passage are to awaken your heart, to awaken my heart to the calling of God to be his representatives here on earth. First point, the first truth is the Holy Spirit is the source of strength. You need to be going to him all the time. The second point is the Holy Spirit uses our weaknesses in verses 8 through 10. And then the Holy Spirit uses, uh, uses those who display his glory. May it be <clears throat> that in the days and weeks and months and years ahead, that God can look down at Anchored Fellowship and see that Anchored Fellowship is giving glory to God as a whole and as individuals. Let me pray for you. Father, as I think of this week, and I, I'm always in awe of our missionaries, I see them as the front line of Grace Community Church. I see them out there <clears throat> in foreign countries, learning languages, dealing with people who have a different kind of culture, and yet, Lord, they continually have that Holy Spirit power working in them. May they be representatives wherever they are. For the people that are here, as we support them, as we love them, as we care for them, may we, Lord, encourage them to keep building that relationship with God Almighty. May Grace Church be that beacon of light here in Southern California, the light that seems to be going out. We pray this in your name. Amen.